Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I got to tell you something, people. I was uh, I caught the tail end of that uh, that that Democratic convention last night, and I wish I'd seen it because I had a lot more talent than last week. I mean, we all love Scott Baio, but I don't want to see Scott Baio as a political figure. I was waiting for Willie Ames to come up and steal his thunder, and then we have Anthony Sabato Jr., who, who I thought was the El Polo Loco guy who was cutting the chicken in a commercial, but he wasn't. But it was just funny to see all the millennials out. And, you know, I'm 52. And I, I just, I don't get the millennials. They're all just like, they all cry. They're all like little babies. And I'm thinking today, they're all sitting there in their bedrooms. And they're not coming out, even though their mom's making them waffles. Anyway, we have a, we have a great show. We have a guy from my hometown. He's, he's, he's like, he's the name comedian of Cherry Hill, New Jersey. He's the guy who's been on Letterman and Comedy Central. Letterman twice. And, uh... He's a man about town, good hair. You know, he's sort of like back in the day. He was like the Richard Grieco of comedy, and my guess is Joe Matteri. How you doing, Joe? <laughs> How are you? How you been, man? Uh, not, not well. I guess I'm doing better than Richard Grieco. Oh well, it's funny. I I tweeted something about Grieco. I said if I win the uh, if I win the there's a huge lottery a while ago. I said if I win, I'm going to take part of that and make sure that Booker movie that never got you know, May gets finished. And he actually liked my tweet. Isn't that funny? <laughs> Booker. And I've, I've tried to get him on my show and I've dealt with this PR person, but he says, oh, Grieco's not doing interviews. And I'm like, but I want the Richard Grieco. <laughs> yeah, of course. You gotta, you, gotta, you gotta love those guys that we know and they, they feel like they're unsuccessful probably. And to us, we like we remember those guys. Oh, yeah, you know? I, I mean, I I know you you are a big fan of the Dustin Gwynn. I'm not <laughs> sure. I know all the references that you make. I usually I usually know because it's they're they're 80s TV references or 80s movies references, and uh, they're the people that we idolize. And you, and you live in Los Angeles. I'm in New York. You don't see them on the streets here in New York as much as you do in L.A., and there's nothing more fun than when you see one of those people that was in, like, Can't Buy Me Love with Patrick Dempsey or something. Like, I remember I remember taking an acting class in L.A., and one of the girls that he, like, hooked up with in a, in a car or something in that movie, Can't Buy Me Love, was in my class, and I was, I was more starstruck by her than if, like, someone in my class won an Oscar. Oh yeah, well, that's like me. It's like with uh, with I had uh, Amanda Weiss on my show, and I hit her up through. She knew someone, one of my guests, and she's better known as she was uh, Judge Reinhold's girlfriend in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, who would not put out. And then she was right. she was the girl that John Cusack was was dating in uh, Better Off Dead. And to me, you're right. That's like a, that's like an Oscar winner walking into the studio because it's it's. It's our lineage. That's when we all watch that shit, and we all and us being in entertainment and being in the Philadelphia area, that was our connection, and I think kept us going. I don't know why that is. Yeah, I remember bumping into the guy that played Ratner okay. <laughs> on uh, on Seventy Eighth and Broadway in Manhattan, and being like, "Holy shit!" Like, and like wanting to follow him into like a coffee place. You know, I was like, "Oh my god, that's Ratner," and like. He's probably not even, they're not even actors anymore is what's funny. Well, that's like, like go ahead. I was going to say, like, even right now, the guy, I just actually needed an entertainment lawyer. I guess that means my career is doing a hair better. Right. 
and uh, my entertainment lawyer is the guy that played Chunk in Goonies. See, it's just crazy. But then we also we also both got to know Robert Romanus, who for us, I mean, Damone, uh, you know, that was a character that just every everyone who's over forty, and even now the young kids, because it's not so much know Damone. Oh yeah, no, yeah, of course. The, you know, the young people don't know him at all. It's crazy. So, what do you do the entertainment lawyer on? What's going on in your career? Well, I mean, you and I text with each other a lot, so you usually kind of know what's going on. So, you know, I did a I did a one hour special that I I had investors, and I produced it myself. And then, uh, basically, uh, this company is still uh, I, I'm still not allowed to say who bought it, but we have a buyer, and uh, my manager took that special cut it together with a web series that I did that you knew about called Fixing Joe that was on the internet and a company had had also paid for that, you know. So what's kind of cool about doing webs, a web series, you know, you're not making much money. I mean, there's a, there's a little budget if you can sell it to the right people and then you can make a tiny, tiny bit. But uh, I what's cool about them is it's a way that you can do your your dream TV show idea. So I kind of did that. And then my manager took the special and cut it together with some of the highlights of the, of the web series and made a little sizzle reel out of it and sent it out to a lot of production companies in LA and had basically said to me, I want to go with the old school route. I'm going to go backwards. I'm not going to try to get you with a network because I don't think you're a big enough name and they might not want to jump on. He goes, but maybe we can get a production company involved and they can, you know, uh, match you up with a Hollywood writer that has a big name and then maybe we have a chance at getting this to a network. So, went out to L.A. I guess that's, what's it been, about two months since I was out there? I guess I about two months ago. You never called me. It's okay. Don't worry. I had, dude, I'm joking. I literally, I'm joking. I, li- <laughs> I never have this, but I did not have a second. I went there for four days and I had 10 meetings which never happens it felt like 19 you know uh, 99 again because that was probably the last time I had been to LA in one of those kind of situations and uh, my first meeting went really really well out of the 10 to the point where we got an email 15 minutes after leaving that meeting saying we know you guys have nine more meetings but we just want to let you know we're we're in. We we want to do this with you. Um, so that was good to know right at the top of taking ten meetings. Yeah, because you, you have you have a bargaining chip because it, it's like it takes it takes the pressure away from you because instead of you know and you know how it is. I mean, you lived there for a while, and the reason so many people don't get agents and stuff like that is because they're always so like they look. Hungry, and an agent goes, "Well, screw them. They're looking hungry." So you go in. You got the confidence of a guy who just, you know, a Philadelphia Philly who hit a first run, uh, first pitch fastball on opening day. Right. Yeah. So that helps. But the, you know, what's funny is it helped. But um, nine of the other people, and I'll, I'll tell you, four out of the nine that I had left went almost as well as the first meeting. So I was thinking we'd have a, a few offers, but. Um, we kind of didn't. I mean, uh, so we, we had a lot of people interested, but, you know, 
I'm lucky that the people that bit were the people that I actually liked the best too. So like I'm pitching a show, you know, about my neuroses and the woman comes into the meeting and she's basically like, I watched all of your episodes of your web series. I loved it. I couldn't stop watching it. My husband needs to be on meds. My kids are on meds. I have twins that have ADD. I totally get your world. I totally get this show. I would love to do it with you, basically. So that, you know, is is a home run for a comedian. Because, like, four meetings later, I meet with uh, Jeff Ross, who's the, you know, the guy who produces, not Jeffrey Ross, the comedian, but Jeff Ross, the producer of Conan O'Brien. Right. I meet with their production company. And it, it was like the polar opposite of the first meeting, where the guy's like, I haven't seen any of your stand-up. I haven't seen the web series. I haven't seen the sizzle reel. <laughs> what do you do? You know, you're just, like those, you're dead in the water with those kind of meetings. It's like I can't explain. You got to see my shit, or at least have seen me do a show somewhere for me to have a you know a high success rate in the meeting. So, but I was I think because I'm you and I are both older now, and I've been through the game already. So I was like, I'm looking at my watch, thinking. Like a tennis player, I could, I connected it to it. Do you ever watch? I'm a, I'm a tennis fan, so I've seen tennis players where they do something called tanking a set, where they're like they start to lose and they're like they they lose the set really fast so they can get to the next set and then start fresh. Okay. I literally wanted to just go. Let's leave this. I want to get out of this meeting so I can get to another one. Like this one stinks. Let's get to a good one. Like. And it, back in the day, I would have been, like, trying so hard to make this this guy and his team like me. And in my head now, I'm just like, I don't care. Let's just let's just get out of here. Well, yeah, I think, like, I think that comes with maturity because we sit there and you're right. It's like you sit there and you're like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to please anybody. And when you get to that point where you're like, hey, you know, I can't do anything. I'm going through it right now with a guy on Twitter. A guy sat there and tweeted me, uh, tweeted me, hey, yo. Why have you only had one guest of uh, color in the last, one black guest in the last 100 uh, episodes and only three of color? And I, before I would have been like, screw you, it's none of your business. And I basically tweeted him back. I said, hey, I said, the reason is, it's not like I don't reach out to him. I query everybody. I book who gets back to me. Then this idiot this morning sends me a tweet. He goes, that's what all the media people say. And before I rip them apart, but now I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to deal with it because we're older and we don't need that crap. That would have been funny if you said, black guys don't use the internet and they don't get back to me. Yeah. I mean, I know so many black comedians and you're and they don't have websites. It's like, what are you doing? How, how are you able to do that? Like, I mean, it's, it's hilarious that they have that old school way of thinking about show business that you don't have to do any of the business part and people are just going to come up to you and discover you. It's hilarious. So now, now, what's your show about? This one you're pitching, what is it about? And is it, I mean, the Fixing Joe is, tell the people what the Fixing Joe is about because that's still up, right? You can still find Fixing Joe. That's still on, well, yeah, they put the company official comedy, you know, they put them all on YouTube and I still have them on JoeMatterese.com if people want to go look at them, but it was funny because my original concept for that show, I had to alter a little bit because of the budget, which the original concept was a guy who's neurotic, who's married to a psychologist, 
who wants to fix himself and become a better dad, a better husband, a better career man, a better son, just better in every category of life, has a, you know, the original idea was he has a radio show where his listeners are fixing him instead of the other way around. Like he takes advice and he's honest about his problems and he puts all their advice into action in his life. So I go back all the way to like eight years ago. I was pitching something else at the Montreal Comedy Festival in this category called Just for Pitching, where you would pitch a show in front of a live audience, in front of network executives, and they would basically shred your idea because it would make the audience laugh. Right. And you had a video screen that you could show a little short demo of your idea. I think you got four minutes to do whatever you wanted to do to try to sell your idea. So I had shot this show where comedians were on stage with a therapist and being analyzed during their stand-up and then questioned on all the different uh, things that they brought up in their act in front of the live audience with the therapist. So it was a total different idea, but I had one line in my pitch where I said, I, would, I think I'd be a good host for this show because I'm, I'm so... Um, I'm so self-centered that I want to have a radio show where people help me. And and I had a punchline. I think it was something like I, I like a little act-out moment where I go, this is Joe, you're on the air. How can you help? Like there was just a quick boom, boom. Right. Just threw it in there in the pitch for this other idea. So some guy from ABC television comes up to me after the whole thing was done. And he goes, I'll be honest with you didn't really love the idea of the comedians and the doctor on stage and all that. He goes, but that one line, I go, which line? He goes, where you said, I want to have a radio show where people help me. He goes, that's interesting. That could be a television show. Do you have anything on that idea? Because that one line, is, I think you could build a whole show around. So... I started writing something on that, and he brought me out to L.A. for a showcase. Typical my luck. We did a showcase. I'll never forget this. We did a show at the Laugh Factory on a Monday night, or maybe a Tuesday night. The only people in the audience were the ABC network executives. There was no one else in the audience. It was like you were dead. So I just, everybody bombed that was on the show. But the other guys already had deals with ABC, so it didn't matter that they bombed. I'm trying to get a deal with ABC, so it mattered that I bombed. So nothing ever happened with that idea. But I always kept it in the back of my mind. And then podcasting started happening. And... I all of a sudden was like, hey, this is a chance. Why don't I really do the, sh the radio show that I talk about, th that I said on, on stage that night? So I start doing my own podcast called Fixing Joe, where people give me advice and I talk about my problems. So that started going and going and going. And uh, I, I had a meeting with a with a company that made web series and they really liked that idea and wanted to do a web series called Fixing Joe but, but like I said I didn't have the budget to really do a radio version where I'm taking callers and all that kind of thing that would have been a little harder to do one thing you realize when you start making these self-produced ideas is that 
you got to keep the where you're going to shoot on, on you know achievable without having to spend money right you need free, you need free locations and that was a very hard one to try to get a radio studio and have callers and all that kind of thing so i morphed the idea into a guy that kind of has a a youtube following and he talks into the he talks into his webcam and asks people that are downloading the videos for advice or or it looks like he's asking for advice and then we shot um, act out so whatever I was talking about at the top and at the end of the episodes. So, um, so what kind of a, a little, a little bit annoyed me is my manager when we went into these production company meetings. He was like, "Well, let's make you a regular guy. I don't think you need to be a radio guy. I don't like that. That make that that's too much like being a comedian." He goes, "Let's just." Let's just make you like blue, uh, like a blue collar guy who uh, has his own construction business. But then you can't you know? dress the way you do. You can't, you know, you can't be dressed at all hip like Joe Matarese does if you're a blue collar guy. Well, yeah, and it's funny. Artie Lang took offense to this, but I said it on his podcast last week. I said I mentioned that to my my wife has a PhD, and I feel like whenever I bounce creative things off of her, like sometimes she's way off base, but lots of times. She she intellectualizes it, and she's she's on she's on the mark, and she was like, I wouldn't be married to a plumber or like a construction guy. She goes, nothing against them. It's just I, she goes, you're creative and you're you're introspective, and not those guys aren't that often. And like already took offense to it. He's like, I, I have a lot of cousins that are plumbers, and they're smart as shit. Your wife doesn't know what she's talking about. I'm like. You know, I'm like, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm, my wife isn't not into a guy who's a plumber because he's not smart. It's just somebody that picks being a plumber is a lot different than me. Like, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is true. And you're right. And they can be smart, but it's a different thing. And you, and you mean, how many times you see women with a PhD marry a blue-collar guy? And it's not that blue-collar guys are bad guys because they're not. I have good friends who are blue-collar guys. But you don't see a lot of PhDs marrying blue collar guys like you don't see a lot of successful movie producers marrying heifers you don't see that marrying what heifers big girls they they, they all marry 22 year olds it's just something that happens right because they can right well yeah it's like and i tried to explain to my manager and i think i might have heard this on a david spade interview or or norm mcdonald interview recently where they said someone was saying something like oh yeah I, i mentioned that to my manager and he didn't think it was a good idea he goes you talk to your manager about your creative idea. He goes, you come up with your creative ideas, and then you get your manager or your agent to sell it. You talk to them about business. You don't talk to them about the creative part. And it's true. Yeah, and because I, I was trying to explain to him, I go, I need to have a creative outlet in the show. There needs to be somewhere, like even like Doogie Howser, he had those little things that he wrote at the end of each episode on the screen. Like I need to be a guy that's venting in that kind of way somewhere and why would a guy that has his own construction business be doing that i I don't really understand unless he wants to quit being in the construction business and be a novelist or be something like that be what like a novelist be something that is is something that he all of a sudden has this idea he wants to write so he's a plumber or construction but he wants to be a writer then you can sit there and vent yeah that's what that was the only way that i was willing to 
do the blue collar thing as if I was like, I can't stand being in the blue collar world. I want out, you know, or, um, but then that's what the show becomes. And it's like, I don't know if that's not what I'm looking to do. Like I'm a guy that's look is anyone who knows me. I'm a guy that spends a lot of his time and energy trying to further his career that he's currently doing. Like, why can't I have that kind of job where, you know, I remember, I, I think I pitched to uh, Adam Sandler's production company when I was out there, and he said that writers always pitch shows, instead of them being a writer, they always throw architect in. He said that's a popular one. So it's so they don't look blue collar, they look more like a smart guy that builds houses. Right. That's like, that's like everyone, everyone loves Raymond. You think of the Brady Bunch where uh, the, the dad was an architect. So, so, so I'm not sure which way I'm going to go. I, I, I'm not worried that my manager was set on that because in my in my head I'm going. They bought me. They like the idea. Um, that when I meet when they if they get a writer that's interested in this project, him and I will come up what we want it to be. I'm not going to worry about what my manager says. It should be or shouldn't be. Now, which way would you want it to go? I mean, if if, if someone said, "Okay, Joe, you have creative freedom right now." And seriously, I mean, not like multi-million dollar creative freedom, like all of a sudden you're the comedian on the moon. But if you had, if you had the, they said, okay, you have the creative freedom with this writer, which way would you want to take your show? Well, it's funny that you say that because I remember knowing when we were in LA that that first meeting sounded like it was a go. When we were at our last meeting, I said to my manager, I go, can you do me a favor? And he's like, what? I go, you need to quiet this voice in my head. He's like, what voice? I go, there's a voice in my head as a creative person right now that's going, just throw out the idea of you having a radio show where people call in and help you. I'm, I'm curious what a, a, production, a, a, a successful production company would think if I throw that out there. Because I remember my last manager when I was meeting with that company that made the web series, him not him being the same way. He was like, enough with the fixing Joe. It's an old idea. No, nobody wants it. And then we're in the meeting and they start explaining that they want, they're looking for something that's very connected to the audience, you know? And I look at my manager and he gives me a look like, okay. And I pitch the fixing Joe idea and they love it. Right? Like you, Every time I've ever said it to a person that's kind of creative, they usually love it. So I wanted to throw that out there in the last meeting. And my manager fucking talked me out of it and uh, said, that's just like being a comedian. I don't think you should do it. This is working. We're having good meetings. And uh, I listened to him and I didn't do it. And it's funny. Like, who knows? Maybe if I was saying that pitch in every one of the meetings, I might have had six production companies that wanted to do the show. And it's funny because also he said that he didn't want to. He and when he he edited the sizzle reel, the guy, and he didn't let me see any of it, which is hilarious. Not many comedians would allow that. Hey, why'd you allow that? I, I, I think because I take I do take medication, and that is what a lot what my show is about. And my anger is like gone, and I don't get angry. I just go, okay, he knows more than me. Let's, you know, I've been a control freak my whole career. I'm going to ease up. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. 
and I let him I let him move forward and I just he showed me what he edited together and I ended up liking it I said it's pretty good um, but it's funny that the first meeting and the meeting that went the best was the one where the lady watched all the web series episodes <laughs> and this guy is trying to keep it out of the sizzle reel <laughs> well, that's, that's what happens now I gotta ask you you, know, you do talk about mixed, uh, fixing Joe and the medication when did you start taking medication and what made you drive to taking it because when I knew you I mean you just seemed like a mellow guy I mean I knew you back in 80, 87 or 88 when did you decide that you needed medication? Was it something when you got married? Or, and how has it changed? Has it, has it helped you a lot? Or do you think you've lost some... I hear sometimes when people take medication, they lose some of the edge. But then some people say it's wonderful. Like uh, Greg Barrett was on, and Greg had said how when he started taking medication, when he woke up, he didn't worry about everything. Everything was like, if there's a problem, it'll be okay. When did you decide you needed to start taking the meds? And when did you have the confidence to incorporate it into your act and into your writing? Well, like, the com- I don't know if you know Pete Corielli, the comedian? I know the name. Okay, I told him that I was uh, taking medication and I was married to a psychologist and that she says I have a lot of problems and I need to work on myself. And he, he made a joke. He said, that's what happens when you marry a psychologist. You All of a sudden you have problems. He goes, if you married a woman who was a foot doctor, you'd have foot things that were wrong. You know, it's like he he seemed to think, and it's a little bit true. It it's it did start into being married to a psychologist. I just dealt with having attention deficit disorder or having an anger problem, and then once I married a psychologist, it started with therapy. She's like, we were fighting all the time. We were very opposite. Why were you, you fighting? Got, just because you were opposite? I mean, because I mean, you guys were you fighting? Once you got married, or were you fighting when you first started dating? Uh, well, we we ended up having to move in together way earlier than we normally would have, which is never a good thing in a relationship. But she took an internship for her PhD in uh, San Diego, and it was a one year internship. And she wanted to do it. And she wanted me to move out there with her, and I said I would because I I just didn't want to be in a long distance relationship. I really wanted. I wanted marriage, and I wanted kids, I knew that, and I was happy when I met her, and I had just moved back from L.A. for that reason, that I was like, I'm going to be single forever if I if I continue out here in L.A. The, the dating pool is so bad, i got to get out of here, because I, I wanted my career, but I wanted, I wanted a normal life at the same time. I've always been that guy that wanted both, and I moved back, I meet her, we start dating. Then seven months, she's like, let's go to San Diego. I go. And there was a lot of, that brought a lot of anxiety out in me. Um, Moving back there, I'm in San Diego, which I thought was going to be easy to go to L.A. And it's not because the traffic's so bad. Oh, yeah, it's awful. It takes twice as long as it normally should. And uh, started getting, I remember even the first day we moved into the apartment, I probably was starting to have an anxiety attack because I thought the apartment was too close to the five, the highway, the five. (laughs) It was like on it. It was like so loud. All you heard was cars inside the apartment. I was like, Jesus, I moved all the way. And I let her pick the apartment. I had never seen it. I thought I was moving close to the beach and I'm closer to the five. (laughs) And I I remember I put my luggage underneath. This is... 
this is a while ago is when people didn't mount TVs on the wall. They would mount those shelves on the wall and sit the TV on a little swiveling shelf. Right. <laughs> there was a TV up in the air. I remember I put my luggage underneath it and I stood up without paying attention and just smashed my head <laughs> on this shelf, almost knocked myself out. And I just like, and I spun into like an anxiety attack, like, oh my God. So my wife noticed that I wouldn't be as fun as when I wasn't anxious. And she was like, Jesus. And we would fight a lot because she was smarter. And there were times where I was even trying to read more, which was hilarious. I I was never a reader because of ADD. And all of a sudden, I'm like literally reading the newspaper with a highlighter. And it, it became a joke in my act, and this was true. My younger brother from Cherry Hill has the Philly attitude, and it's in my it's in my half hour special on Comedy Central. He literally goes, "Dude, you can't quit dumb cold turkey." That's what he said to me, <laughs> and it was true. And and then we moved back. We uh, you know after a year, we we made it through the year somehow. We moved back. I owned a place in Hoboken. We move into Hoboken together, and uh, we get engaged. And my brother made you the ring. He did. Yeah, your 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 engagement ring. My older brother made you that ring. Your brother works at Napoli Jewelers. No, I didn't. No, my brother made my brother made you some ring because oh, you. He yeah, he did because he was a jewelry designer, and he gave you an extra little bracelet or something. I have no memory of what you're talking about. No, I, I remember everything, and he told he me he came up with the design, and then I took it somewhere else. Maybe that, maybe he designed it. Maybe I don't know. He did something with your ring. I know that. But anyway, keep talking. Uh, well, uh, yeah, there was always a lot of. Then it started with I think you need therapy. Why don't you try therapy? So I started seeing this therapist in New York who saw only comedians, which was pretty classic, and that's where the idea of therapy on stage with the comedians kind of came from first first session where i'm seeing a therapist who sees all stand-up comedians i remember sitting there going well well, this should be a show this is a show i don't know how to do this but typical reality television whenever i pitched it they were like well can you get that guy they want the guy they don't want a therapist who pretends they see comedians they want the guy that really sees comedians to do a television show this guy didn't want to do a television show. He was a real therapist. But um, he would he probably would bring things to a head, too, because he'd always say, your wife doesn't accept you for who you are. And we used to fight all the time. She's making you read? That's ridiculous. She needs to accept you. He would always say that. And we would just brawl. Then, finally, I think it got to the point where I got fired from a few gigs. Or maybe just, you know what it was? I think I got fired from one stand-up gig. I always had the problem, if people would heckle me, that I would slam them back way harder than they needed to be slammed. And comedians would love it, but I would get in trouble from the club owners. And this one time, I got fired. And that's how the podcast started. I was like, I'm going to do my first episode. I'm going to have Bill Barr as the guest. And I'm going to talk to him about my anger and how I'm getting fired from gigs. and It's a problem. And, and that's kind of how that evolved. And then uh, my wife talked me into trying medication. She's like, 
and she wasn't the only one that suggested it. I had, I think someone on the podcast, because I'm one of these guys that I listen to strangers more than I listen to my own wife. One of the people on my podcast said, I'm on meds. Why don't you try the lowest milligrams in this? And the guy happened to have my same last name. He wasn't related, but his name was David Matteris, and he lived in Rhode Island, and he had been taking, like, Lexapro, which is the same as Celexa, what I take. And he goes, try the smallest amount. So I said, okay, screw it. I'm going to try this. And then just like my web series, which we document from the beginning of the meds all the way through being on them for a while, they sit on my counter for like a couple months. I, I, the first step was buying them. The second step was actually trying them. It took a while. Then I finally tried them, and I, I found that it was life-changing. I haven't been fired from a gig since, and it's, it's been like six and a half years now. I've never altered the milligrams, nothing. I just stay on them, and uh, I find that, well, you asked if the edge is gone. There's a, I would say a little bit of the edge is gone, but what I gained is so much more than what I lost. But what about your creativity? Because, you know, the thing, the one thing about a comic is, and you know this, is we come up with ideas, or writing, or anyone creative, because our mind doesn't shut down. Have you felt that your creativity has changed, or has your writing style changed somewhat where before, because like me, if I write a joke, I just sit there and shit pops in my head. Like, I've been tweeting with the conventions and all that. But now, do you sit there and do you think like that, or do you actually sit down and write? Is it easier for you to write now that you're more focused? Um, well, that's at, that's Adderall versus Celexa. The Adderall, the focusing drug, I've only been on for like a little under a year. Um, the the Celexa, which didn't make me anxious, I would say is more the one that people would say uh, could hurt your creativity. Okay. Because creativity a lot of times came from being pissed. So now, if you're not pissed off, you know, if you notice comedians, you know, the comedians that I like are just venting about what they're pissed off about, what annoys them. So now you're removed annoy. What happens is, is you become a different person and you just learn how to write as this less anxious person. And which became easy for me was I wrote a lot of jokes about being on the medicine. And, and that became kind of my hook. And my one-hour special that's about to come out is called Medicated. Now, did you ever think of trying to get corporate gigs for uh, for pharmaceutical companies and stuff like that? Have you tried that? Yeah, yeah. I have yet to find somebody who knows how to make that connection because I've wanted them to sponsor my podcast, Fixing Joe. I'm a I'm an advocate for these meds. I mean, I talk about them like they're the greatest thing ever. See, because that's interesting because you know Lou DiMaggio, right? I know he is, but I never met him. Well, he had a heart thing happen, and he uh, and he sat there, and he had something like, because I had a heart problem, too, and he had a heart problem, and all of a sudden, they needed real heart patients for this, and I remember seeing him on this commercial, it was for like some company, and then from that, after he did this commercial, they sat there, and they found out he was a comic, well, he's he got out of it, he's back in it now, but they found out he could perform, so he started getting corporate gigs, and it's a perfect thing, like Don McMillan gets corporate gigs, because he used to be an engineer, for you, it'd be perfect for these companies because you can look at it 
and you can make it humorous and you can also, you would be able to enhance salespeople because, you know, the, the salespeople, there's, there's always that thing that people go, oh, wait, they're taking meds. But when they find out that everyday people take it, it would probably be very helpful. Yeah, well, I know um, the actor uh, who played, what's his name? The guy in uh, Sopranos, Pantoliano. Joey Pants. He did a whole documentary about um, bringing, bringing positive awareness to, to mental health because it used to have this negative stigma. And he did a documentary. I never got to see the documentary, though. I should look it up, see if it's on Netflix by now. See, it's probably five years old at least. Um, I, I would love that. I just, I've never been someone that, I don't know how to. Um, That's why you got management, to, Joe. That's why you got management. <laughs> dude, managers, I've never, I don't think I've ever had a manager that knew how to generate something. What are they doing as your manager? You gotta get. I mean, shit. There's people there. I mean, you. Okay, you have two. You have two Letterman exper- uh, uh, appearances. You have a bunch of stuff. Man, there's people who sit there and have seven minutes and they're getting shit. And you're going, what the hell are they doing on TV? Yeah, but I, I don't. You you have a lot of comedians on this show. Have you ever heard someone go, man, my management, man, I got to thank them. They did everything. They were great. Why? Well, there's some people who you know the management has helped them make money, and I think that's what management's about. But uh, now, did your manager get you the Marin podcast, or how did you end up being on WTF? No, of course not. So now, how did you? He didn't, did you, did he didn't you, want me to do too many podcasts when I was in LA doing those meetings. <laughs> he goes, "Don't be tired. Don't do too many podcasts." Well, how did WTF um, come up? I know, I know Mark Marin from back when he was a New York comic. I knew him a little bit. Um, I was supposed to do the show a while ago. He was actually supposed to be a guest on my podcast when I first started it. When I first and started mine, he was on it. I don't have the copy of it because re- it was at the studio. Him and then him and Blaine Kapash hung in the studio when Mark was on. And it was, this was like five years ago. And he had just, he got back to me. And uh, well, now he's blown up hugely. But it, it was cool. So now, so what happened with you getting this podcast? He, uh, he was supposed to do mine, but then he didn't, he didn't do it. But I think I had was supposed to do an LA trip once, and I contacted him, and I was able to to get it. And then it, it ended up not happening, and then I had to cancel it. I think that was back when I used to do Chelsea lately, like once a month. And then I hit him up again because I knew I was going out to LA for these meetings in advance, and. Uh, he finally got back to me and said, contact my uh, producer. I contacted him, and they gave me a date. It hasn't aired yet, though, but I'm trying to time the airing. What's great about doing his podcast, he, he interviews so many people in advance that you can try to match up when he airs it with what you want him to plug on it because he records himself at the top of all his podcasts. So I'm guessing I should wait until the... the, um, the my special comes out so I'm trying to time it so he can plug the special and I also want him to plug my podcast which is just recently became a subscription podcast so people can hear more than you can hear one a week for free and if they want more they can subscribe on joematteris.com and pay $2.99 to listen to more than one app and then I give them all kind of stuff which is cool about this website connect pal you can give people uh content you can give them i have a a thing called joe's comedy locker and i just put up all kind of videos of stuff from 1990 up till now and uh 
I'm one of those guys that just have a room full of every format you can think of, from VHS tapes to high eight to eight millimeter. I have so much stuff. I don't know if I can curse. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. I have so much shit on the in this in this closet, just filled with from short films to sketches we shot. There's just so many things. Well, what stand? I filmed all kind of stand up when I was starting out. So what's I that, what's, what's that one you have from? And is that up there? You have tape of a uh, me and you did a New Year's gig, and I forget so where it was. The Cherry Wood in Blackwood, New Jersey. And now there's streamers. I still have. I, it's it's me, you, Ronnie Long, and uh, who else? <laughs> Ronnie Frank Long. Barnett. Frank Barnett. <laughs> Ronnie Long. Ronnie Long sends me messages on Facebook every once in a while, and uh, he's out here. And uh, I, he? I, I never. I was supposed to run into him once. I was doing a, I was a guest on Storyworthy podcast, and that shoots from the West Side. So I'm sitting there, and uh, we're supposed to get together, and he never texted me back. And then he's like, "Oh man, my grandmother got sick," or whatever. I don't know what he does out here. He like lives. With, I think he watches his grandmother, but he's out here. So that must be. So that was the the, the Cherrywood. God, who headlined? Uh, I want to say Frank Barnett. Oh. <laughs> so so you you have all this stuff. So now, how do you convert it from VHS so it actually looks half decent? And so when people go to this comedy locker. Do they just look and it's a, like a video clip? And, and I mean, how do you get the whole process of getting all that stuff up? Um, it's, well, you do have to convert it if you have it on VHS. A lot of it I had, I had converted a lot of stuff that I have up there already was already converted. I had hard drives of just tons of things. And I was like picking and choosing what I put up there. I put all my best podcast episodes just the you know the biggest guests that i've had i put all those up there now who are some of the biggest guests you've had i had already lang on a bunch of times i had craig ferguson on i had uh robert romanis who we were just talking about from fast times at richmond high uh let's think here Uh, phil rosenthal thanks to you i had him on the creator of everybody loves raymond um, Jay Moore, Ralphie May, uh, who else? Just a lot of big comedians. So they're all on that. You can they can find this on this if they get your subscription site. They can find this stuff on there. Yeah, and then like all this kind of all kind of video stuff. I also offer them a free download of my brand new one hour special. Once it comes out, they'll get one like a few days before it actually comes out for free. Free video download. And then I also offer them free tickets. If they ever want to come to a stand-up show, I'll give them as many free tickets as they'd like. So they get enough perks that $3 a month, if you're actually a fan of mine, the way I look at it is you're actually saving money by joining. <laughs> now, now, do they have to sign up for a year? Uh, no. I mean, they could sign up for a month. If it sucks, they can, they can bail. No, because I would just do it for two ninety nine to get free tickets and go, screw this, man. I got my tickets. I'm going to the show, and I got this other shit. You could. And I also offer comedy advice for comedians. Like, I'll watch their their little demo video, and I won't write jokes for them, but I'll, I'll point them in the right direction and go, dude, you got to get rid of this, and you should be doing more of this, and how about this for that? Like, I offer comedy advice for comedians if they want to become subscribers. Now, now, what made you decide to go to the subscription format? And is there some listeners 
who are like, wait a second, we just liked it for free because there's so much content out there that is free. And I know the good thing is you are giving away a lot of stuff, which, you know, people love free stuff. It's all about the swag. But what made you decide to go this route? And have you had heard anything from your fans that they're irritated? Yeah, the fans were mad. At first, I tried to do 100% subscription. But then I realized after like a week or two, I was like, I got to put one up for free. Because that one up for free is a great way to advertise becoming a subscriber. You're 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 cutting yourself off. Because I look at my web my uh, podcast as like my life my career lifeline a little bit. I get lots of gigs from my podcast. I do this tour that I promote a lot on my podcast called Outside the Box, where I let fans produce shows where they bring me to their hometown and they become the producer. And I have a whole section of my website dedicated to it so they can uh, make money if they want. Sometimes it's usually fundraisers where they can raise money for something as well as me getting paid. And some of them I do for no guarantee, which a lot of comedians would never do. Explain I can that. Usually, I've been doing it so long now that I can tell who's going to be successful in um, producing a show with getting people to come. And how It's not... Not often that you'll do a fundraiser and, and six people show up, you know? Well, explain, what, are, what? Ex- explain what no guarantee means to the listeners. No guarantee means they just have to pay me a certain amount per person that comes. And I have to pray that they're able to generate enough people to come that it's worth my while. So um, I've only had it one time where it didn't work out that well and only like 40 people showed up. But it still was like a pretty, not. it wasn't even that bad of a pay for 40 people there. It wasn't that bad. Like some comedians would go, oh, that's a great night. And I was like, well, I thought it was going to have an amazing night because I thought 200 people were going to come. Right. So no guarantee just means there's no flat fee. Like if you failed as a producer, you're not going to lose any money is what I'm saying also. They can't, they can't get screwed. Now, what gave you this? What made this idea come into your mind? I mean, were you just tired of playing the clubs? Was the club money changing? Did you want more? As you said before, you know, you've always wanted to be sort of a control freak uh, with your career. What made you decide to go to this situation where you said, okay, just put the, the whatever you call it, the, what, the box, the no box. What's it called? Outside, it's outside the box. So, like, I give, I, if you go on my website and you click on the section, they literally gives you ways like to try to find a venue for free to ticket the event for free to uh, i even have a sponsor because you're a philly person yards brewing company is based in philly and south jersey right i, I know it just from when i was going back to see joanne i i all when i was i was not back in south jersey for years but i know because yeah. I, I had a few yards at a phillies game they uh they sponsor me now for any of them that i get in their area and they'll give they'll give free alcohol to the event so that allows people to charge more at the door. So, like, if they have to pay me a certain amount per person, they can make the ticket higher because they're going to give them free alcohol. And they'll try to trying to get a food sponsor too because if you could have free food there, now you can get even more for the ticket. Why well, you hit up Tony Luke? You hit up Tony Luke. I don't know. He's a buddy. Hit him up on Twitter. Say I'm Cooper's buddy, Tony Luke. You should get him on your show. 
You had him on, right? Yeah, and then he bought. Then I had him on when he was out in L.A. And then when I was back with Joanne, I had never been to a Tony Luke's. And I was, we were back at Christmas time. And I tweeted him. I said, Tony, man, what's up? And he said, call me. So I called him. And I said, I want to try your sandwiches. So he took us to the one in Maple Shade and he bought us lunch. He probably doesn't even need any more publicity. He's doing that's, so well. That's true. Well, we'll, we'll think of someone. We'll, we'll, Vito's Pizza. Get Vito's Pizza and Jerry Hill. <laughs> Vito's Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. So, so, no, so what? I made you know somebody at Vito's Pizza. I have but, a T-shirt um, from Vito's. What were you gonna say? No, what made you come up with this idea, though? Why did you go this route? Because it's well, one of them was is a lot of these, a lot of these clubs, man. They tr- they pay you nothing these days. It does. It's not like it was back in the day where if you did Letterman, you could make five grand for the week. Like they try to bring you in for a really low amount. They set up the bonus structure so you could never hit any of your bonuses. And I've always been pretty entrepreneurial. You even know me. You know me from way back. Like, I always had that skill. Like, I used to be a DJ when I was like 19 and 20. I could walk into a bowling alley and I would leave with a gig. I would get them to hire me to play music on a Tuesday and a Wednesday and turn it into a steady thing. I've always had a good gift with people, I thought. That's why I always hate when I'm working with managers because most of the time they've been worse with people than I am. And I'm like, why do I have to give this guy 10% and he sucks? He's pissing people off, you know? So, and you know what it stemmed from? Like how I said the, the fixing Joe stemmed from an ABC executive telling me it was a good idea. This stemmed from, I end up getting an email. This is probably five years ago. I get an email from this woman saying, my, my girlfriends and I just watched your Comedy Central Presents. We were cracking up. We loved it. We went to your website. We see that you're going to be at Motley's in Boston in three weeks. I'm going to bring all of my friends and family, and we're going to celebrate my uh, 40th birthday at your show. So I look at my calendar, and I email her back. I go, that show got canceled. Actually, that comedy club, I think, went out of business. I'm not even going to be there that day. And she's like, oh, we were going to all come. It was going to be so fun. So I just start asking her questions through email. I go, are you going to still have a birthday party? She's like, probably. I go, well, where? So we start emailing back and forth to the point where I go, why don't you call me right now? Here's my phone number. Let's talk about this. So I get her on the phone, and I ended up, you know, if you've been doing this long enough like you and I, booking ourselves, you start to know how to be pretty good at it. First question I go is, uh, where do you live? She's like, Boston. I go, do you have room in your house? She goes, I live above the Intercontinental Hotel in a 2,000 square foot or 3,000 square foot uh, loft style apartment. So I immediately know she's got money. Right. Because the Intercontinental is like a five-star hotel in Boston. If she lives in a 3,000-square-foot loft above this amazing hotel, she's rich. So I say, do you have a big room in your apartment? She goes, yeah, my living room and dining room is almost the whole apartment. I go, can we pull all the furniture out of there and make an empty space out of it? She goes, yeah. No problem. I go, could you get a, like a whole bunch of round tables? She goes, I live above a hotel. Those are easy to get. 
I go get a whole bunch of round tables, put tablecloths on it, put candles on all the tables. I go, I'll bring a sound system and a stage light. Your apartment will look like a comedy club. Can you pull that off? She's like, no problem. I can get about 60 to 70 people. And I gave her a flat fee. So I end up going and doing it. And it, it was an amazing gig. I had an amazing time. She put me up in the hotel below her apartment. And I made twice what I would make in a comedy club. So I always had that idea in my head. And then I think, I always remembered hearing like, uh, I think Paul Tompkins might have even done it before. Yeah, this, wasn't a unique, this wasn't a unique idea. Yeah, Paul I, used to do it if you can get, I will come to your town if you can guarantee 300 people came out. Yeah. And then he started getting it. Yeah, and so same with Tig Notaro, I think, did a Showtime special. She would go to her fans, but they would do bad gigs on purpose to make a special out of it. It's kind of like a documentary called Knock Knock, It's Tig, like she's showing up at their house. Okay. So I, you know, realized, okay, I got 20,000 people on Twitter that's a little that's a little bit of a, a following. Let's just throw it out there on social media. Right? I throw out the idea. I swear to God, I got like 20, 20 emails the first day of people that were interested in trying to do it. And I turned four of those into gigs. And like you said, if you like I can't stand going to comedy clubs where they won't let me bring my friend to open, and I have to hope the guy that goes on before me is not the worst comedian ever, or somebody that's going to make it hard for me to follow him. Right. I hate. I and then on top of it, I'm lo I get really lonely when I'm on the road for like four days by myself. I hate it. So these are gigs. They're usually most of them have been two to three hours away from my house. I can drive down and do them and come back. I pick a friend to open, and uh, like I said, I've made twice or three times what I make at a comedy club. See, that works out. And, and everyone in the audience is usually someone with kids, so like I have a ton of material about being a dad, you know, and uh, they end up being better than the comedy clubs. Like, that's another thing that I hate. It's like I used to do a lot of these clubs in New York City. I mean, they pay $75 a spot, and New York City when I first moved here, it used to be really fun to perform in. Everyone in the audience would be from that neighborhood that the club was in, in New York City. They'd be really smart audiences. Not anymore. These comedy clubs now, because there's like about 15 of them in New York City, they all, tell, they all have street teams in Midtown that give people free tickets. So everyone in the audience is usually from another country. They don't speak English as their first language. Or they're a tourist from, like, Florida or something. They're not New Yorkers. They're not even good crowds. So it's, like, it's ridiculous. And when you have kids, which you don't have yet or if you ever will, you, you get pushed against the wall and you have to come up with ways to make money. You came so, up with a good way. I'm, t I'm ready to try to do one of these low-end specials because I just had investors and it cost me a lot to make that last special. And I sold it for a, only a little bit more than what I paid for it. 
And then I heard about this comedian. I think his name's Owen. Is his name Owen Smith? I don't know. He's this black comic who shot his whole special on iPhones. Did you hear about this guy? No, not at all. But it sounds cool. He bought iPhones and then returned them after he shot the special. And then he put that into the special. He filmed himself talking to the Apple people about their return policy. And then at the end of the special, he returns 12 iPhones. That's a good idea. Yeah, but you know, you still have to hire guys to shoot it. You can't have strangers holding up cameras in the air. And you still have to pay somebody to edit it. But I mean, geez, you're dropping a, a $60,000 budget down to like five or 6000 maybe. Right. So like if I would have, my thing is it's got to be good enough that I could sell it to one of these companies that pays, you know, what they pay. Now you're making a lot of money. If you could figure it out how to shoot it cheap, but have it look like you didn't shoot it cheap. That's that's my goal now. Well, that or you just shoot it cheap and you sell it directly to your fans and you pull a Louis C.K. It's the way to do it. There's ways to make it. We're running out of time, Joe. Um, what uh, so, everything I'm doing? <laughs> yeah. So you know, so what is what is uh, what do you have coming up right now? Any any club gigs coming up in the near future? Uh, well, I'm on my way. Yeah, tomorrow I leave for Providence, Rhode Island. Does this air today? No, it'll air. Uh, It'll air Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. It airs on different places. It will be in Texas on Saturday. I don't even know. I just send it out to these stations, and they put it up. I don't even know when they play it. Okay. Well, I'll plug this week's gigs. This week, I'm at the Providence uh, Comedy Connection. I'm doing a live podcast, doing the Fixed Joe podcast on uh, Thursday night, and then Friday and Saturday, the 29th and the 30th. I'm doing stand-up shows there. And then, uh, uh, then I have a gig in... Boston that I want to plug on May uh, August twelfth in uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, which is basically Boston. I'm told at this uh, theater. Okay. I forget the name of the theater. They have to go to uh, JoeMatterese.com if they want to buy tickets to that. JoeMatterese.com. What's your uh, Twitter? At the Joe Matterese. And your Instagram? At the Joe Matterese. Facebook. And- at the Joe Matteris or the Joe Matteris for Instagram All right. or and and for Facebook. Well, cool. Well, man, this is good catching up. I'm glad we could do this. And uh, people, seriously, go to his website, JoeMatteris.com. You can get a lot of uh, cool stuff. Go check his podcast out. For two ninety nine, you're getting a deal. Hey, you, you, you don't be a dick. Subscribe for a year, but you got like four people. You take four people for free. You look like a big shot, and they don't know that you got the tickets for free. So go to his website. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have a five hundred and a. 37 episodes up there, coopertalk.net. Uh, in two weeks, in music lovers, I have the wonderful Lisa Loeb on the show. She'll be, uh, she's not going to play music, but she'll talk about her great career. Um, also, email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Go to at coopertalk. Um, iTunes, Stitcher, it's all coopertalk. Words with friends, Instagram, coopertalk1. I'm out there, play me, I'm having fun. Also, don't forget, stopthesalt.com. You know, when I had that health problem, I wrote that cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes, and they're cooking for one. If you don't have these major ingredients, don't worry about it. You don't have cumin? I got no recipes with cumin. And they're all easy to make, so there's no pictures to intimidate you. So you can go get it at barnesandnoble.com, or you can get it at amazon.com. But if you go to stopthesalt.com, I make more money. I'll sign it for you. I'll send it to you. 
Don't show up at my house if my return address is in there because I sent in a manila envelope because I am ghetto. So please do that. Send me an email, as I said, Cooper at coopertalk.net. Go check out Joe Matteris. Check out Fiction Joe. Go to YouTube. Type in Joe Matteris. You can find him there. You can sit there and go, oh, wow. Okay, I just heard this guy. And as I said, subscribe because you know what? Podcasts and internet radio, it's the way to go. There's no damn, all these damn commercials. We might do a read in the beginning or the end for a sponsor rehab, but you don't have to deal with that shit. So please listen to him. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.